Thank you. Uh, this morning as we start, uh, we are going through our series called uh, Red Letters, Encounters with Jesus. And um, as I jump into that today, I just want to share a story with you. When I was seven years old, or, or around seven years old, um, my mom worked at the church as uh, the administrative assistant and the children's uh, uh, director, and so she was at church throughout the day while the five of us, five boys from seven to 15, we were all at home policing ourselves throughout the summertime when school wasn't in session. And so if you can imagine seven, or imagine five boys in a house by ourselves, adults at work, you can imagine that can become pretty chaotic. You can imagine my mom, now the church is only like two blocks away from our house, so if something were to happen, she was a phone call away, could be home pretty quick. But as you can imagine, my mom probably got a lot of phone calls throughout the day because somebody, somebody hit somebody, somebody took something from somebody, somebody wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing, you know, the list just goes on. And so uh, my mom came up with this, this plan to help us organize our day to keep us to keep us busy while she wasn't at home, she gave us all sections of the house that had to be cleaned by the time that she got home. And so she took our house, she divided it up into five sections, including parts of our room, because our house, we only had three bedrooms for seven people, and so we, we all shared rooms, and so we all got portions of our room that we shared, too, to clean. And um, my mom would always tell us, you know, this has to be cleaned by the time I come home. And so that would, that would help keep us busy for at least a portion of the day. Uh, more times than not, we did get the, we did get the house clean, and, 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 you know, we were good, and we got, we, we, well, we just didn't get in trouble then. Um, but one particular day, there was, there was an incentive on the positive side. And if we cleaned our areas, my dad was going to take us to the driving range when we got home. Now, my, uh, my dad was, a, was an avid golfer when I was little, and, uh, and loved to take us uh, with him. But he had a rule. He would only take us golfing with him if we were 10 years old or older and that we could control ourselves on the golf course because he didn't want to get embarrassed when he took us out there. And so um, he, he always just kept those rules in place for us. And because I wasn't 10 years old yet, I didn't get to go out to the, the golf course like my older brothers did. Um, but I had golf clubs, and I... Um, I would just like go out in the yard and hit like wiffle balls with them and do all this kind of stuff just to just to imagine that I was playing golf like like my dad was like my older brothers were um, and so to get to go to the driving range with my dad with my brothers was was a cool thing and I felt like I was big stuff and um, so that day though we all we that was that was like right at the moment where we were given new sections of the house that we had to clean. And for the longest time, I had the easiest section of the house. It was the back hallway. It was the easiest thing to keep clean um, because, like, hardly anybody ever went back there. Um, But then when we switched and we rotated that day, I was assigned the living room. The living room was the had the potential to be the messiest, most cluttered room in the entire house. And I don't know why it is when you're when you're seven, eight, or nine years old, but when like when you're given a task that seems so small to adults, it can seem impossible to a seven-year-old. And I remember being given the living room, and my heart just sank, because I knew there was no way in five hours I could clean the living room and my bedroom. And so the whole day, instead of cleaning I just sat there and thought of how miserable my life was because I had to clean the living room. And while I'm doing that, my brothers are out cleaning their areas. And you know how, you know how kids clean, right? We just move the mess from one area to the other, right? And so because I wasn't doing anything, I was just sitting there and I was moping and, and being you know, upset. My brothers were bringing all the stuff from their areas in and dumping it in the living room. And I just wasn't doing anything about it. And so my mom got home to find the living room an absolute disaster, and I'm an emotional mess sitting on the couch being upset about it. And uh, she walked through. She realized what my brothers did, too, so she wasn't happy with them. And uh, so she, she, was, she, was, she was upset, and then my dad came home. My dad saw that she was upset and saw that we were sitting in the living room because we had gotten in trouble. And so um, he walked into the, uh, the, the kitchen to talk to my mom and, and come to find out my dad really wanted to go to the driving range that day. Yeah, I think he got a new golf club or something, wanted to try it out. So uh, he came back out. He, he talked to my mom. 
into letting us go to the driving range. And so as my mom's telling us that we're still going to get to go to the driving range, even though we didn't do what we were supposed to do, I, I, th- I don't even think I let her finish. I ran into my closet. I got my golf bag uh, complete with my, my, my fairway woods that were actually wooden uh, McGregor's with rust on the irons. I didn't care. I was going to get to go play golf with my dad and my brothers. I put the thing in the car. We still had to eat dinner first, but I was like ready to go from that moment. My brothers didn't care as much because my brothers got to go golfing with my dad at the actual golf course. That's a little bit more fun than going to the driving range, just hitting the same shot over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, but they, you know, they were happy too. First off, I think most they were happy because they didn't get in huge trouble for not doing what they were supposed to do and for dumping all their stuff in the room, and my mom was able to tell it. Um, but we all got to go to the driving, so we all, we all ate. My mom usually stayed home. She didn't, she didn't necessarily a big golfer, so she didn't care. She stayed home. We went to the driving range with my dad. We pulled up to Milt's driving range in Omaha, Nebraska, on Avenue Q in kind of West Omaha. We got our, got our clubs out. I remember running up the steep incline to the, the golf shop. I remember getting the huge, what seemed like a huge bucket of golf balls because there's, there's six of us that are hitting. And, and I remember going out to the two mats that we would, we would hit from. And my dad like gave us the order because there's six of us, you know, everybody's going to hit two shots each and you're going to rotate from this mat to this mat. And kind of, he had a system worked out. And uh, after like four times through, my brothers have just lost interest. They don't really care that much anymore. Some of them went over. There's a putt-putt place that was just on the other side of the parking lot. They went over to do that. I stayed with my dad, and we hit golf balls until it was dark outside. And then when we got home, figured out that my mom cleaned all of our stuff up while we were gone. And what a day that was. And, and the fact that I still remember it, probably still remember it with really vivid detail from being seven years old, um, just kind of speaks to how impactful that was. And the encounter that we're going to look at today uh, mirrors this situation that I had with my brothers and my dad um, a, a little bit. What we've been learning as we've been going through this series is this. The, the complete revelation of God to us is Jesus. If we are wondering how would God respond in this situation, how would God uh, handle uh, this as far as temptation is concerned and, and dealing with your enemies and loving other people. and all. We just have to look to the person of Jesus because Jesus is God with skin on. And so if we are curious as to how God would interact with people, um, we can just look to the person of Jesus. When you have an encounter with Jesus, you are never the same again. And we've, we've seen this already in each of the three encounters that we've looked at before. We've seen that when Jesus comes into contact with people, they're not able to leave that contact with Jesus the same as when they came into it. The first week, first week we read this, there is no, or we learned this, there's no excuses why we can't encounter Jesus. This week we looked at Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, in John chapter 4. And we uh, learned that there's so many, there were so many barriers that are in between her and Jesus. There are so many reasons why her and Jesus, not only uh, should Jesus not have been able to impact her life the way he did, uh, but they shouldn't even have been at the same place at the same time. Jesus definitely shouldn't have talked with her. Um, she, uh, she was an outcast to the town and to the community. Uh, Jesus was a, a Jewish man, a rabbi. There was no reason why they should have even been interacting at all. And Jesus broke through all of those barriers to get to her. Therefore, you and I have no excuses why we can't have an encounter with Jesus. We cannot, there's, no, there's no sin that we can commit that takes us too far away from Jesus. There's no issue with our past. There's no um, issue with our present that Jesus can't break through. And so therefore, you and I have no excuse why we can't come to Jesus. In week two, uh, we, we uh, uh, looked at the story of the Canaanite woman. Uh, Pastor Chip shared with us that Jesus was kind of on a vacation of sorts. He was getting away. Um, I had the ability to, to do that actually this week. Gabby and I went uh, and visited her grandparents that live in Arkansas. And so I was in the South for a whole week uh, with people that talked funny. So if I sh- say anything this morning, by the way, I just want you to know um, I'm, I didn't have a stroke or anything. Um, we, I was just in the South and, and they talk funny there. Um, so if I say a y'all or anything like that, just, just go with it. If you talk to Gabby at all this morning, uh, she's worse than I am. So because uh, she grew up there, and, and when she gets around southern people, it just comes out. Um, so uh, j- just know that. But I was on vacation, and, and when you're on vacation, and um, 
and whatnot, you, you don't want to have to you know, think about what you got to do back home. You don't want to think about all the, the deadlines you have to meet. You don't, have to, you don't want to have to deal with situations that you're, you're, you're struggling with back home. You just want to be on vacation. You want to rest. You want to recharge. Jesus is trying to do that in the area of Tyre and Sidon. And so he's up there, and, and this Canaanite woman comes to, to Jesus and his followers, and her daughter is possessed by a demon. She's been asking and asking and asking to get to Jesus. And what we learn there is that in our desperation, Jesus meets us where we're at. This lady's persistence to get to Jesus, to have Jesus touch and to heal her daughter, um, was what made that, made that encounter happen. And there are, there are times in our life where we just need to persistently take something before Jesus. And, and, and it's, in that, it's in that persistent pursuit of God that he breaks through and he does things even greater and bigger than we can possibly imagine. And so that's, that's what we talked about in week two. And then last week, we, we learned from the rich young ruler that Jesus just wants our heart. When we have an encounter with Jesus, all he's looking for is to have our heart, to be the number one thing in our life, to be the most important thing to us. And unfortunately, we also learned from the rich young ruler that we have the choice to make that happen in our life or to not. And the rich young ruler was told by Jesus that what he had to give away was his money. Because his money was the most important thing in his life. And he, had, and he had to embrace Jesus and make him the most important thing. And the rich young ruler just could not bring himself to give up his money. And so it's a choice for you and for me when we encounter Jesus to choose to follow him or not. And all he wants from us is our heart. There's a probably a, a good chance that that rich young man could have stayed rich. <laughs> he could have stayed uh, a, a ruler uh, over the synagogue or whatever he, was, wh- whatever he was ruling over at that time. But he never gave Jesus the opportunity. Because see, once we, once we give something over to Jesus, he doesn't want us to be miserable. He doesn't want us to, to, to live a life of just sheer pain and unenjoyment. Jesus wants us to be fulfilled. He wants us to live the best life we possibly can live. And so most often when we hand things over to Jesus, he hands them back, but he just wants to make sure that we're willing to give it up in the first place. And so that was the rich young ruler. Um, this week when I, was, when I was getting ready for the sermon, I read this. Jesus was more than expected. He did not neatly fit into categories of those who encountered him. He was always someone more, someone who called for more from those he encountered more, he was more than Joseph's son. He was the fulfillment of prophecies. He was more than a master rabbi. He had the authority of God. He was more than a fiery reformer. He brought reform by healing, by caring, and by bringing good news to the down and the out. When we encounter Jesus, we learn this. He is more than enough for whatever we're experiencing, for whatever we're going through in life. Jesus is more than enough, and it just takes one encounter with Jesus to be completely changed. This morning, uh, the, the passage that we're going to look at is found in Luke chapter 7. And uh, I, we're going we're to read through it, and then I'm going to kind of go through a few, uh, a few points to, to consider. Um, and I'm going to read it. It's going to be up here on the screen. I invite you to follow along. Notes are also in the Bible app as well if you want to go through it on there. But starting in in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, we read this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, before we go on, I should note this is very common practice. Uh, if If a rabbi was in town, if he was visiting and he was sharing in the synagogue, it was very common for a Pharisee or someone within the synagogue to invite the rabbi over to their house and to uh, feed them a meal, and then to invite the community to come over and to continue hearing from the rabbi. It's kind of like if uh, uh, Pastor Chip was preaching and he reached his allotment of time, and instead of staying here and, and listening to the rest, somebody said, you know what, Pastor Chip, why don't you come over to my house? We'll invite everybody else over. We can all eat while we listen to the rest of what you have to say, right? Some of you guys will be on board for that, right? Sometimes. Um, but they did. They invited, and their houses were kind of open uh, when, when, they would, when, when the rabbis would come over. They would recline at the table. People would literally line all the walls in the house 
just to hear what the rabbi would have to say, then, then, then usually the, the Pharisees or other people around could ask the rabbi questions and they would answer. And it just kind of turned into this like all-day affair. It was not a slow meal that they would eat. It was very deliberate. Um, they would, um, they would uh, just share things about what's going on uh, that they've encountered. The rabbi would place different places the rabbi had gone, um, what, uh, what he really felt like. Uh, God was laying on him to tell and share to the people. It was, it was, it was very common for a rabbi to go over to a home. Uh, and so this is what is happening here with Jesus. He's still in Galilee. Uh, Jesus is uh, just still kicking, kind of kicking off his ministry. He's called his disciples, uh, but he has not come down to Jerusalem yet. He's still in Galilee uh, experiencing his ministry there. And this Pharisee invites Jesus over after he's shared at uh, their synagogue. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, it should be noted uh, that everybody was invited to the Pharisee's house. Rich, poor, middle class, lower class. Um, If you were... uh, if you were sick, they didn't want you around them. They didn't want you to touch them. However, you could even come closer to Jesus that moment than you could anywhere else. However, if you were, uh, if you were somebody who was sinful, and 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 by the way, uh, depending on what um, what version you're reading, sometimes this, they call this woman the immoral woman. The whole town knows that she's a sinner, and because the whole whole town knows that she's a sinner, because Luke knows that she's a sinner, and he writes about it, uh, it's most likely that this woman was a prostitute. And prostitution is one of the sins that the Pharisees look down on the most. This woman is a professional adulteress. This woman wrecks families. This woman uh, makes a living off of causing other people to stumble. And there's a reason why in the Old Testament... um, they, they stoned people for this. And this is, still the, this is still commonplace. And so the fact that this woman would want to come into the home of a Pharisee was just, just boggling to the, to the Pharisees. They do not like them. They make it very clear that they don't like them and that they don't want them to come close. And so everybody is welcome except for the worst of the worst people. And prostitutes would fit into this category. And so she's going to the house, and it should be also noted, too, that she's coming with a jar of perfume. Uh, she's coming after already having an encounter with Jesus somewhere else. Because she's coming on a mission, to, to, uh, a mission of thanksgiving to Jesus. She is, she is thankful for what Jesus has done in her life. Uh, Jesus has off, uh, turned her life around. Jesus has offered her forgiveness. And so she is, she is coming back to have a second encounter with Jesus. Um, and so that is kind of, that's kind of what she's doing. We don't, we don't get record of that first encounter, but it's obvious that it took place. And so she is, she is also headed to the house of the Pharisee. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, and she kissed them, and she poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. This is, this is one of my favorite parts of this entire story. So Simon is thinking all of these things. He's not saying them. He's not proclaiming them. He's thinking these things. And Jesus just answers him out loud because he knows what's going on. Jesus answers him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, the word forgave here, the, the, the Greek word, um, it actually, it, the root of it is grace. And, and what Jesus is implying in telling this story is that this certain money lender, it's not just that he had loaned money to these, these two individuals, and then by saying he forgave them, it just, they no longer owe him money. He's a money lender, and he actually is the middleman to, an intera- to a transaction that they had. 
they needed money to pay somebody else, and so he gave the money to somebody else, or he, he gave the two men the money, and the two men still owed somebody else that money. And so this money lender is actually saying, you know what, don't pay the other person back, I will pay them for you. If you've ever uh, had the opportunity to either read C.S. Lewis's uh, books, The Chronicles of Narnia, or you've seen the movies, um, you know there's this certain interaction that takes place with Aslan and Edmund and, and the, uh, um, the Wicked Queen in, in the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or the book. And in this interaction, Edmund uh, traded his family, pretty much, for sweets. He, he told the queen that they were there, uh, sold them out, left them to come over and turn them in, um, and he thought he was doing the right thing, but it turned out he was not. He was, de- he was deceived by the queen. And so, due to the law of the land of Narnia, he owed a debt that he had to pay. And the character Aslan, who represents Jesus in this story, steps in for Edmund and offers himself to the queen in his place. And this is the same, this is the same imagery that is being used here for this parable that Jesus is sharing. He's, he's telling them actually what he's getting ready to do for all of them. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them loves him more? Him being the moneylender. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman. And, and I think this is, this is interesting. So Jesus... In that, in that period, in that, that, that time, um, eye contact and, and all that was, was a big deal. And so to, for Jesus to turn and talk to the woman who shouldn't be there in the first place and to still talk to the Pharisee but not really, not really paying him any, any attention, um, that's, kind of a, that's a big slap in the face. But Jesus is doing this, and I think this would be like, a great scene in a movie, but he turns and he just looks at the woman, and he's, Jesus is focusing on the woman, and Simon's just left there to listen to what Jesus has to say. Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears, and then wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as, great as, uh, as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The first thing I want us to look at and to consider this morning is that Jesus is willing to go into hostile environments to have an encounter, to go into hostile territories, to have an encounter with people so that he might be able to save them, to change them, to offer them the hope and the peace. It's, ju- it's no different than the other times in, in Scripture when Jesus goes to eat with tax collectors, and with sinners. He's doing the same thing with these Pharisees. And there's two, there's two, two uh, options here that Simon could fall under. Simon the Pharisee that's in this story. He could be like Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is a Pharisee who comes to Jesus at night with a bunch of questions about how to be born again. He doesn't understand it. He's trying to understand Jesus on a deeper level. And we learn later on in Scripture that Nicodemus is one of the ones that helps bury Jesus. Which means that Nicodemus was was following Jesus and willing to change his whole way of thinking, his own theology, everything. Jesus, his encounter with Jesus, changed him. And it could be that Simon the Pharisee is having that same type of an interaction with Jesus. However, the second, uh, the, the, the second kind of way that he could go with this uh, is, is most likely what was going on. Simon, Simon was a part of a, 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 was a, was a Pharisee, and he was 
in a group of about 2,000 individuals in the, in, the, in the region. And these 2,000 Pharisees were very well connected. They were very well um, read. They knew what was going on. They weren't priests in the temple, but they were in charge of keeping the laws of the temple and keeping the laws of the synagogue and, and making sure that others were following them. And, and so when anybody came along that stirred up trouble, the Pharisees knew about it, and not just the Pharisees in one part of the region, all of the Pharisees knew about it. They would, they would communicate regularly. And Jesus, even though his ministry is just getting started, he's already ruffling their feathers, and they already want to see Jesus uh, come to an end. And so it's more likely, and because of the, also the way that Jesus was treated when he enters the house, the fact that his feet are still dirty, the fact that he wasn't greeted with a kiss, the fact that he wasn't anointed with oil or perfume when he came in the house, meant that this Pharisee did not treat him like the guest of honor that he was and that he should have been. And so, Simon is not seeking to understand Jesus on a, on a different level, the way Nicodemus was. Simon is trying to get dirt on Jesus, trying to, hoping that by inviting Jesus into his home, he's giving him more opportunity to put his foot in his mouth. He's giving him more opportunities to get caught in a trap. He's giving him more opportunities um, to say something that Simon could send to the temple to say this blasphemer deserves to be put to death. And as Judas found out by being willing to do this, there's probably some profit in it for Simon the Pharisee. But here's the thing. Jesus knows and he understands what he's walking into. Jesus isn't surprised by the fact that the Pharisees are out to get him. They already have tried to trap him in the previous chapter. He knows what they're up to. The Pharisees have already accused Jesus of being a blasphemer. They're frustrated with him because John the Baptist endorsed him and has, has been lifting Jesus up to his followers and to his disciples. And they already really don't like John the Baptist because he said some awful things about the Pharisees. So most likely Simon is trying to trap Jesus, and he's probably placed people in the audience throughout the house so that there's nowhere that Jesus can go and talk to somebody where that conversation can't be understood and things can't be jotted down and things can't be passed on. And so Jesus is even willing to walk into a trap to have an encounter with somebody to try to save them. And there are people in our lives who are in some dark places that are in some enemy territory, they're in some hostile places, that Jesus can go and penetrate and change them. And how often have we written people off? Well, they're hopeless where they are. Or there's nothing that can be done. Like, they've chosen that path. They're going down that road. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. I mean, we probably all know somebody who's been affected by substance abuse and other things that just, it just seems like there's no hope for them. But Jesus, just like we talked about with the woman at the well, Jesus can break through any barrier and he can go into any dark place and have an encounter and change somebody's life. And that's what he's doing in the house of Simon the Pharisee. The next thing that we want to look at today is that our judgment of sins are skewed. We all do this. Uh, Simon the Pharisee definitely did this, but we all do this. We kind, of, we kind of rank sin, don't we? Like, well, you know, I lied here, did this thing here, but that's not nearly as bad as, you know, what somebody else did. Just like when I was growing up, you know, like, you know, Mom, I, I didn't clean this area of the house, but it's definitely cleaner than their area of the house, Right? We all do this. We, we, we rank sins. The Pharisees hated people who committed sexual sin. And that was the worst thing that somebody could, could possibly do in their eyes. Being a thief wasn't nearly as bad. Being uh, a murderer wasn't as bad. Being a deceiver wasn't, wasn't as bad. But what this woman was, was, was doing within their community was basically unforgivable. They did not want her around. They didn't want her a part of their, their gatherings. They didn't, want, they didn't feel like she should be accepted anywhere within, their, within their, their, their body, within their community. And Jesus comes in, and he talks to the Pharisee, and 
quickly we see Jesus do what Jesus tends to always do. He, he flips everything upside down. And he said, you know what? This woman um, who, who you don't want here, this woman who you're, you're frustrated, I'm even willing to let come and touch me and to wash my feet and to anoint me. Her sins may be many, but they, they've been forgiven. Really, who's, if Jesus is coming and he's coming into a hostile territory and he's, and he's wanting to have encounters and he's wanting to save people, often when we read that story, we automatically think he's there to save the woman. The woman's already been saved. He's there to talk to, as Paul tells us, the worst of all sinners. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, we read this. And this is Paul. He's talking to Timothy, and he's saying, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Why was Paul the worst sinner? Because he was a Pharisee. And I don't mean to rag on, on the Pharisees. Uh, in fact, one of the, one, of the, uh, one of the commentaries that I read this week said, you know, honestly, the Pharisees and Jesus had a ton in common. But this is the issue with the Pharisees. Have you ever noticed the people who have the least to fix often don't fix the things they need to do? In this story, this woman had so many things that Jesus had to forgive her for that she's overcome with emotion that Jesus has even considered her and talked to her. But she's forgiven. Jesus is at this house to deal with the person who has just a little stuff to fix. And it's often the self-righteous that have the hardest time realizing that they need help. Unfortunately for you and for me, often when we read this story, we can find that we maybe have more in common with Simon than we do with the woman who's been forgiven. We go to church on a regular basis. We, uh, we, we read our Bible on, the reg- on a regular basis. We're in small group, but there's little things that just, just over time, they just kind of work their way in, and we don't realize it, or, or we realize it, but then we start to, to, to just list them. Oh, yeah, you know, it's not that bad. It's not that you know, it's, it's okay. Or, or we realize that we're just going through the motions. We come to church on a Sunday morning and we sing the songs that are up there, right? We go through, we go through the, the notes of whoever's speaking. We, we give, we, we do all the stuff we feel like we're supposed to, and we go on and we go about our day, and whatever happened this morning makes no difference when you leave the place. Last week, Chip mentioned in his sermon that it's so easy to put things in a checklist and to confuse a checklist with a relationship. This morning, I want to ask you a few questions, and I'm just curious as to how you would answer them. When was the last time you prayed by yourself when no one was, in, when no one was sick or in need? When was the last time you read the Bible outside of your small group or church? When was the last time you said, uh, no to an activity that you could have, so that you could have time with God. When was the last time you turned off the TV, put down the phone, and had alone time with God? When was the last time you lost yourself in worship? When was the last time you gave more because you felt checked by the Holy Spirit? When was the last time you talked to Jesus as a friend and then listened to what He had to say back? If it's been a while for any of those things, we may have entered into the realm of the Pharisee where it's just become a checklist and we just do the next thing because that's what we're supposed to do. Um, That's what we've always done. And the relationship that we're supposed to have, it's not a relationship. It's a rut. Simon was caught in the rut. Jesus went into that house to get him out. And it's the worst type of sin because it's the hardest one to notice. And it's the hardest one to fix because it's Something that's so small. He's doing all the right. He's doing all the right things. He's going to the synagogue. He's praying. He's he's most likely seeking forgiveness for sins. And he's but it's all just a checklist, and it's not a relationship. And just like we looked at last week, Jesus wants our heart. He wants a relationship. 
and our judgments get skewed because we feel like the sexual sin or the, 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 the hot-button sin that people are committing around us, those, those things are bad, but, but we're not that bad. The things that we're doing aren't that bad. But Jesus wants us to know that those are the hardest ones to correct. Next, don't hold back when Jesus sets you free. This woman has so much in this story that, that, that goes on um, that it's, it's just a cool picture. First off, she should not, like we've talked about, she should not be in this house. So when she approaches the house and when she goes in, she automatically starts to hear the, the murmurs and the murmurs like, what is she doing here? Like, what, what, she's going closer to Jesus. Does any, somebody should stop her. Like, what, what is Jesus doing? She's hearing all this stuff. She's most likely also walking by guys that she knows, that she's had encounters with. And it's got to be uncomfortable for her. And it's, and it's, but she is there on a mission, and she is there to see Jesus. And I have a feeling when she walks in, one of the reasons why she's overcome with emotion is definitely the forgiveness that she's received from Jesus. But I think also she walks in and she's surprised to see this guy that showed her so much love, so much compassion, so much mercy, that's supposed to be this guest of honor. He's sitting at a table with dirty feet. And he's sitting at the table, and he's not been anointed. And he's sitting at the table, and nobody's greeted him the way that he's supposed to. And being a woman who the town looks down on, she probably sees that same thing to a certain degree happening to Jesus in that moment. And because of what Jesus has done for her, and because of the way that she sees Jesus being treated, she starts to cry. And it's not just a, it's not just a gentle, subtle cry. It's not just her eyes started to water. The, the, the term that the, in, in Greek that's used there is she literally rained water from her eyes onto Jesus' feet. And then she goes on to wipe his feet with her hair. And this may be one of the most egregious things that she does because in their, in their law, in their, that day and time, a husband could divorce his wife if she let her hair down in public. So what she's doing, she let her hair down and she's wiping somebody's feet with them, which wiping feet was one of the lowest things you can do. That's why Jesus, when he wiped the disciples' feet, that was such a thing that the disciples resisted because it was such a low thing. It was such a low position for Jesus to be in. And so here's this woman who's already considered low by her society. She's already, uh, she should not be there. She's already making a scene by crying. Now she's wiping Jesus' feet. And then when she gets done, she kisses them. And it's not just, a, it's not just like a subtle peck or, or, or a kiss. The word that's used there is the word that's used in, later on in Luke when, when Luke is writing about the father who sees the prodigal son coming home and he runs out on the road and he kisses him and he, and he hugs him. And that's, that's the terminology, that's the description that's used here with this, this kiss that the woman gives his feet. She is making a scene. And she doesn't care one bit whatsoever. And then she takes her alabaster jar. Now here's the thing you've got to understand about this woman. She's a prostitute. She is now losing her way of making money. And she's going to take the most valuable possession that she has. This jar of perfume probably uh, equals about two to three years wages. And she's taking that, she's breaking it open, and she's pouring it on Jesus' feet. Conventional wisdom would tell you if you don't have a way of making money anymore and you're a woman in that society, there's a reason why Jesus directs people to take care of the orphans and the widows. And that's because they don't have a father to provide for them or a husband to provide for them. It was needed in that society. That's how everything was arranged. This woman has nothing now. Because of her first encounter with Jesus, she's given up that whole way of life. She should hold on to her money, but she's literally pouring it on Jesus' feet. And why is she doing all this? Why is she making a scene? Why is she in a place where she shouldn't be? It's because Jesus set her free and she didn't care about anything else. When was the last time that you could say that about yourself? Jesus set me free and I don't care how it appears to anybody else. We live in a culture that wants to suppress um, 
especially Christianity, but religious beliefs in general, like they just keep that, to, it's a private thing, right? That's what society wants to tell you. You know, like don't bring it out in public, do that at home, that you, you be you, but you be you at home. Like don't have it rub off on anybody else. Don't try to bring your Bible in here and read it. Don't try to convert people. Don't try to talk to people. It's just, it's a private thing. And what we learn from this woman is we shouldn't, there's nothing that we should be hesitant to do because of Jesus. When Jesus sets us free, we should worship freely. We should talk to people about it. I remember the night I was six years old. I was at Tabor, Iowa. I was at a camp meeting. It was supposed to be hot. It was supposed to be boring. And as a kid, you're not supposed to enjoy that thing. But I was there that night. A, a, a children's pastor was there with puppets giving the gospel message. It clicked with me that night. I went down, I prayed, and the first person, I, I ran out of that sanctuary, the first person that greeted me out in the, uh, the, 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 the sidewalk outside of the, the tabernacle that was there was our district superintendent. I didn't know who the DS was. I didn't know what, how, like, that he was somebody of importance, but I just told him, blurted straight out, Jesus forgave me. And I was six years old, and I didn't understand all of it. I didn't quite get what Jesus had really fully done for me. But I was excited to tell somebody about it. When was the last time you were excited to tell somebody what Jesus had done for you? And when was the last time that you just worshipped and didn't care what anybody around you thought? Sometimes we're so surprised. We feel like, you know, we don't want to make a scene. We don't want to be the person that nobody wants to sit by and worship because they, they're all over the place and, you know, or they're, they're crying and emotional all the time. You know, we give some, sometimes, especially amongst guys, we give people a hard time about crying and showing emotion. There should be no thing that holds us back from us telling God how thankful we are for the forgiveness that he's given. And if it's been a long time since that initial moment where God forgave you, I hope that you can remember and you can go back and you can think on um, just the freedom that you received then. And I hope it's still just as fresh with you now as it was the moment that it happened. And I hope that when Jesus sets you free, that you don't hold anything back. The last thing I want us to, to consider tonight, or this morning, is this. Responding to an encounter with Jesus leads to peace. Now, in all reality, in this story, this woman was going to receive anything but peace. Just because Jesus forgave her sins and she got this new spiritual beginning, she still had to live in the consequences of the life that she had before. The whole town knew she, that she was a prostitute. The whole town knew that uh, she was um, uh, just, uh, a, like I said earlier, the, the professional adulteress, the wrecker of homes. Um, she was going to have to live amongst that and deal with that. Just like the woman at the well had to go to the well at noon and because the, the other women in the community wouldn't want to be around her. She's still going to have to deal with the lies and the rumors and the murmurs when she walks in places that they feel like she shouldn't be. Jesus, though, gives her something that's extremely valuable, and that is peace. And it's a peace that as we, as we look in Philippians 4-7... And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's a peace that we can't even comprehend. It's a peace that we're in the midst of those moments where we're frustrated, where we're mad, where we're, we don't understand why stuff is going on. It's a peace that still allows us to keep our cool. It's a peace that, that normally would, when we're in those situations, we'd feel anxiety, we'd feel overwhelmed. It's a peace that just keeps all of that at bay. And even though we're going through frustrating moments, we can still know that there's a God who has forgiven us, who loves us, who's in control of the whole thing. And that woman leaving that day, I fully believe Jesus knew that she was going to need that peace. And so this morning, do you need peace? I do. <laughs> I, I just going throughout day-to-day -day stuff. There's things that pop up that, that are frustrating. There's things that pop up that I've got to figure out. And I, I was reading, it wasn't even about sermon prep or anything this week. I was just opening up an email. I got it from a youth ministry thing. And, and this youth pastor said, when was the last time you just stopped in the moment of a chaotic day and held out your hands and asked God to give you peace? 
the thing that that woman left with, the most important thing was forgiveness, but the second most important thing was peace. And we serve a God who wants to give you both today. And so today, if you came, we're going to have a time of response here for just a moment before we go. And today, uh, maybe you came in and you identify with the woman. You have a long list of things that you've done wrong, and there's forgiveness that you need for that. Jesus wants to have an encounter with you today, and he wants to give you that forgiveness. Maybe today you came in and you're more like Simon the Pharisee. You've, you've relegated your, your, um, your relationship with Jesus to just a checklist of things. And you've been completing your checklist of things, but there's no fulfillment from it because it's just a list of things. It's a rut that you're stuck in, and you need Jesus to help you get out of that. Jesus wants to have an encounter with you today, and he wants to help that. Maybe you're here today and you have experienced the forgiveness. You're in a relationship with God and it is, it is growing daily, daily. And, and the thing you just need today is peace. The peace that Jesus left with that woman is the same peace that he can give you today. And all you have to do, like we've talked about, just being persistent and asking Jesus for it. And he'll provide it. Stand with us this morning, and as we sing, know the altars uh, are open if you want to come forward and do that. If you want to just stay in your seat, if you want to pray with somebody, um, what, however it is today that you want to respond, just know that, that these opportunities are open for you. Let's sing, and uh, then we'll be dismissed after. Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are God, we thank you that you're a God who forgives. And not only just do you forgive, you take it a step further and you give us peace. And it's a peace that passes all understanding, that that we can't comprehend. 
in a moment where we should be, be frustrated, where we should lose our, our temper, in the moments where we should just be beside ourselves, full of anxiety and fear. Your peace is there and it draws near. God, thank you that you're a God who doesn't just leave us in our, in our dark places, that you're willing to go into those places to find us. God, I just pray for anybody here this morning that identifies with any one of the characters from the story, any, any of the areas that they found themselves in, that you would be close to them, that you bring forgiveness, that you bring peace. Dear God, you're a God who wants our heart. Dear God, today I just pray that we would be willing to give that, that we'd be a, we would be willing to receive that forgiveness that we'd be willing to um, embrace you as this woman did, not to care about what's around us, who's around us, what does this look like. We're not ashamed of the gospel this morning. We thank you for that. God, I pray that you would go with us throughout this week. I pray you'd be with all the interactions that we have. I pray that we would be agents of that forgiveness and that truth and that peace in this world that we live in. And dear God, when culture tells us to keep it tame, to keep it quiet, to keep it personal, may we erupt with joyful praise for who you are, for what you've done for us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.